0: Love podcasts? You'll love Podcast Magazine, taking readers into the lives of today's leading podcasters and beyond the microphone of the shows fans love. Each month, Podcast Magazine's dedicated writers share personal interviews, industry happenings, exclusive categorical charts, and independent ratings and reviews of under-the-radar shows. If you listen to podcasts, subscribe now at podcastmagazine.com and grab a free lifetime subscription while you can. That's podcastmagazine.com
1: on today's episode of reinvention radio
2: it's it's some about letting go of control it's as much or more about learning that we don't have some of the control we think we do yeah. uh, which is why i said before kind of one of the mantras that i've learned since september 11th is dealing with control i've i've heard so many people say and for a few years i never reacted positively to the statement we got to get back to normal and then i realized Normal will never be the same again. This is where normal comes to die. Mediocrity meets its final demise, and the status quo is unabashedly dismantled.
0: Welcome to Reinvention Radio.
2: Now, here's your host, Steve all
0: Alrighty, welcome to another edition here of Reinvention Radio. Steve Olscher hanging out with the lovely Mary Goulet. Hello, Mary Goulet, good to see you. Good to see you guys. It's been so long. Oh my! It gosh. has. Yeah, I know. Mm-hmm. I know. We're welcome back, Richie Ote. What is going on, my friend? How are you doing? Good to see you guys. Good, good, good. to you back
1: from your trips. All happy and healthy and smiling.
0: Exactly. Yeah, we'll talk uh, talk about all that fun stuff here in a moment, and uh, we'll be joined by our friend Michael Hinkson here in just a few minutes, and uh, we'll jump into things uh, a little bit. But I would be a little I, I would be a bit remiss. If there are people going to podcastmagazine.com right now to grab a free lifetime subscription, then they go there and they see, uh, wait a minute, I got to pay for this thing. <laughs> so we gotta we gotta update that ad. But what I will say is, um, since you did hear that ad, we don't want to, you know, leave you hanging on that. Uh, we'd love to have you join us on the podcast magazine journey. Uh, and you can grab a free lifetime subscription, but you gotta go to podcastmagazine.com forward slash lifetime hyphen subscription and then use the password of podmag, P-O-D-M-A-G, and uh, and then you can get <laughs> a free lifetime subscription to Podcast Magazine. As a listener and a fan here at Reinvention Radio, uh, we want to give you that gift, so please do take advantage of it. And speaking of gifts, uh, man, I tell you, it, uh, it was a gift to take off uh, as much time uh, as I did. I- I'm not going to sit here and say that um, every moment of every day of the month of July, I was absolutely, you know, completely disconnected, no work, no nada. Um, did a little bit here, did a little bit there, but for the most part, for the first time in a long time, uh, I was able to take uh, the month of July off or a month off. And, uh, and, and I gotta tell you, it was, uh, it, was, it was really nice. Our plans changed quite a bit. <laughs> we, were, we, we were going to go to Chicago. That was the plan. We were going to road trip from uh, from San Diego to Chicago, and we made it as far as Vegas. And we started talking to people on, you know, uh, back home in Chicago on on the way there. And uh, more and more people were telling us, look, you know, we love you, but if you come, we're not going to see you. <laughs> so,
3: oh, really?
0: Yeah. I mean, even, even my own mom was like, I love you, but, you know, if you come, we, we can't, you know, we can't be together. The, the original, 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 original plan was we were going to fly the kids out to be with um, mom for a week or two, something like that. And then Lena and I were going to go get a much needed vacation and we were going to go out solo somewhere. And then she was like, eh, I can't do that. You know, too much risk. The kids are going to be on the plane, I, you know, and I don't know what they're going to bring from the plane. And I wanna have them there. And so anyway, then it became, all right, fine. Got it, we'll take a road trip. And then Lena was on the phone with one of her friends. And one of her friends was like, look, I love you. And I wanna see you, but you know, I can't risk getting sick. And at that point, Chicago was saying, I guess the state of Illinois, I don't know if it was the state of Illinois or the city of Chicago. I think maybe it was just the city of Chicago at that point. But they were like, you know, look, you come into our state, you come into Chicago, whatever, that's fine. But you have to quarantine for 14 days when you get here. Right? So I was like, well, how are they going to enforce that? Like, that doesn't make any sense. And, you know, you come there, you drive. How are they going to even know you're there? So they were going to fine us, not us, but anyone who comes in, up to, I believe it was up to like $500 a day per person if you didn't quarantine. So for us, that would be like two grand a day. So if we got caught like on day seven and we were out and about, maybe we were just, you know, hanging out at the, you know, at wherever, the bean or something. And you know, I posted a picture on social and they tracked that. Or maybe we got pulled over for a, for a ticket. Like maybe I went through a red light. Not that I would ever go through a red light, but or I was speeding. And then the cop pulls you over. they you know be like, hey, you're from California. You're not supposed to be on the road. You're supposed to be quarantining. So I was like, great. You know what's gonna happen? They're gonna bust one person. <laughs> they're gonna make one person the example. And we're the ones that are gonna make the example of. We're gonna get fined two grand a day. They're gonna say, Steve Olsher and his family drove here from California, didn't quarantine, ended up with like a fourteen twenty dollars $20,000 fine. And I'm like, oh my God, you know, it's just, yeah. So anyway, plans changed and we got as I far as Vegas. That. You, oh,
1: yes. you could have turned you
0: think- that into publicity. Yeah, I could have turned it into publicity. What were you going to say, Mary?
3: Just tell them that you were going there to protest because there's no virus among the protesters.
0: <laughs> None of the protesters have gotten sick at all. It's amazing. <laughs> so as long as you go out and you protest, evidently the virus doesn't, you know, doesn't impact that group. So you're fine. So you just have to, you just have to be real clear. But we, um, we turned around from Vegas and then was like, well, I don't wanna go home. You know, we t- you know, took this time off. I wanna be able to be with the family. And, uh, and we rented a place in Big Bear. And I have never been to Big Bear. Have you, Rich or Mary, have you, you both have been to Big Bear? When were you there last, Rich? Three years. Three years? Three years. Yeah. Mary, what about you? When was the last time you were- Oh
3: gosh, 20 some
0: years ago. Oh, it's been a while. I went, okay. I went
3: multiple times in the summer and in the winter.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, so we rented a place, Airbnb'd it, loved it so much. I was like, you know, let's stay here another week. And so we rented a different place and then stayed for uh, for another week. So we ended up staying a couple of weeks there in Big Bear, and uh, and it was really, really beautiful. Rented the pontoons, the jet skis. You know, did as much as we could. But you know, things are still obviously pandemic related over there. Uh, so some of the thing attractions were closed and and whatnot, but I, uh, I gotta tell you, that's, that's a, that's a lovely place. Like that is a, that is a gorgeous place. So um, we, I don't know, we were kicking around some ideas of maybe getting a place out there and, uh, and who knows? We'll, we'll see, but it is, it is lovely. That water is cold. I will tell you that now that is a cold lake. We, uh, we used to have a place in Southwest Michigan, just you know, when, we, when we lived in Chicago, we had a place in Southwest Michigan that was you know, maybe a couple hours or so from the house on one of the inland lakes. And that whole lake was maybe, I don't know, maybe like 30, 40 acres or whatever it is. And, and enough to get around, you can do a pontoon, you can do some jet skiing, you know, have some good fun on it. Um, but it was like a bath. I mean, like that was like bath water. It was so warm in the summer. And so we went to the pontoon, went out on the lake, and, and just kind of docked for a second, you know, dropped the anchor for a second. And um, and my oldest son, Isaiah, went in first. You know, he was like, oh, yeah, it's cold, it's cold, cold, cold. And then I was like, all right, fine. You know, let me jump in and see. I jumped in. I swam back to the boat so fast. <laughs> I was <laughs> like, oh my God, like, I'm going to die. It was so cold. It, the, I think the water temperature there is in the 60s, which is surprising because it's, you know, it's summer. But, you know, it's that mountain water that's, that's still melting from the, from the snow cap. So, anywho, um, loved it. But I got to tell you, that water is refreshingly cold. Got back in, hung out for a while, and ended up swimming longer the next time. But, man, that was just not what I was expecting based on uh, one of those inland lakes. So how are you guys doing? How are you persevering? How are you hanging in? Let's, uh, let's bring folks up to date. Mary, how about you? Are you, uh, we haven't really talked since the end of June. So where, where are you at with things? Did you, did you get any travel in? Have you been just hanging? What, what's been going on?
3: Um, I'm super busy. My rentals are booked solid until the end of September mm. daily. And I'm just working, just went into escrow on something today. And I was gonna mention about Big Bear, check out Arrowhead before you commit to looking. I'm looking for somebody in Arrowhead to buy a place. Oh. It might be a little more expensive. But okay. Anyway,
0: yeah. it's not yeah. too far. Yeah. To right. Which we'll yeah. Yeah, Arrowhead is is nice too. I mean we Kind of peeked our head around there as well. And and yes, we'll be getting some of the Facebook fans are like, can you get to Michael already? Yeah, welcome to Reinvention Radio. This is where we do. We hang out. We talk a little bit. And we'll bring on Mike in a second. It's gonna happen. I promise you. Any second now. Um, and welcome to Reinvention Radio. This is your first time checking us out. Uh and Richie, what about you, man? How's the uh, how's the month been? What's been going on with the family? I know you got your you got is that a new dog or is that the same dog you just got taken care of?
1: That's okay. <laughs> oh. yes, Lulu, the same dog in the cone of Thank shame. You. Oh man, uh, the cone of shame. One year old and just got spayed, and the the, the wife and kiddo were trying to be helpful by saying, oh, "Okay, we'll get out of here and go do something." And the dog started whining, says, so "Now I'm gonna hold her, but I'm trying to keep her out of frame, uh, unless someone asks in the comments to see her again later." I want to <laughs> yeah. But um, no, life is life is good, super busy. Um, super busy doing doing some work with the Book of Faces and and that other e-commerce business that I do all the time. So mm-hmm. that's that's been good. A lot with streaming stuff. What was what was a harder sale prior is super easy sale now. Mm-hmm. You know, trying to tell people, oh why, you know, why do conferences when you can do it virtually? Now it's like, oh, it's the only way you can do it. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Interesting times for sure. And a lot of opportunities out there. Um, actually just saw that big commerce went public, uh, which could be an interesting play for folks. If you have dilly dally in stock, we are not providing stock advice here on the show. Uh, but they I think they tripled in their first day of uh, of trading. So. A lot of stuff going on in, uh, in that e-commerce land. A lot of people, you know, trying to figure out how to persevere and move through and be creative and, uh, and, and really take advantage of, you know, the opportunities that are, that are at hand here. And so, you know, it's a, an interesting segue into our conversation uh, with Michael. So Michael, why don't you go ahead and un- unmute yourself uh, and let's give, first of all, Michael, give you an opportunity to say, hello, how you doing, my man? Good to see you.
2: I'm doing really well. Thanks. And then is this the time to say that as you drive, we're about 40 miles from Big Bear and about 25 miles from Lake Arrowhead. So visit us next time you're up this way.
0: Oh, there you go. Yeah. Nice, man. Lovely, lovely area up there. Uh, You're not getting affected by any of the smoke and the apple fire and all that fun stuff, are you?
2: Um, Karen tells me that we can see some of the smoke, but no, it's quite a ways from us. So we're not really smelling
0: it. Gotcha. And so, you know, you talk about perseverance, having to pivot, do you know, just do all the the things that we have to do in life. And sometimes life, you know, delivers us just these soft little, you know, curveballs. And then other times, it's just a, a straight screaming slider that you can't touch. I mean, what happened to you uh, is is nothing short of a miraculous story. Let Let's back up just for a few seconds here. Have you been blind your whole life, Michael? I have.
2: Um, I have. was I was born in Chicago, by the way, in 1950. And when I was born, the doctors told my parents to go off and send me to a home because no blind child could ever grow up to do anything. And my parents said, "You guys are all wet." Of course, he can. And so I grew up with that attitude, which was great. Mm-hmm.
0: What? Uh, tell Tell me a little bit more uh, about your parents. What? It sounds like they were very unique. Types of people. I mean, because at that time, back in, like you said, back in the fifties, I mean, there, there, so much less was available in terms of resources and being able to help people. You know, like yourself, they, they weren't willing to take that for an answer. So these must be some pretty incredible people.
2: They weren't willing to take it for an answer, um, but also it's, it's really a mindset. It's really an attitude. The, the fact is that even today, all too often, parents who discover that they have a child who is blind. Don't know how to deal with it. It's not so much the resources that are available, it's the attitude that you adopt in terms of what you're going to do about using those resources or um, allowing your child to go out in the world like any other kid, playing on the street or doing whatever.
0: Mm hmm. Mm hmm. And so, you're and I don't want to go too deep into like childhood and those sort of things but for you since you never knew any other way of of life I mean blind blind since birth did you do you feel like in in hindsight like you you had a, a lot of fun as a child you were involved with things like give us a sense of what life was like just generally speaking for you, uh, you know, growing up blind, like going through high school. And then I know you got into some interesting work things, but I'm just curious what like childhood and all that was like for you being com- being completely blind.
2: I lived in Chicago Southside, 57th and Union Avenue, by the way, mm. until mm-hmm. I was five. Um, so I went to the candy store every day with my brother and cousins and so on. And I walked down the street and did the things that other kids do. Probably didn't play outside quite as much. Then we moved to Palmdale out here in California. My father got a job here. So I grew up riding a bike around Palmdale, worked on a paper route with my brother, and, and again, did a lot of the things that other kids do. Uh, probably not as much. I, and I tended to like to read a little bit more than being outside playing baseball. wasn't going to play baseball, but I still had, I think, a very good childhood. Uh, my father worked in electronics. He was an electronics and electrical engineer. We both got our ham radio licenses when I was 14. He didn't want to do it until I could and until I learned the stuff. So we got ham radio licenses and we had a lot of fun with that. We each had our own radios and had antennas at the opposite ends of the house and carried on conversations on the air, which drove everyone else who listened to us crazy because they knew we lived and uh, we're probably about 50 feet away from each other, but we talked about the different weather at one side of the house as opposed to the other side and <laughs> did all the, the crazy things that people do. So yeah, I, I think that my childhood was fine. And again, it was all about attitude. And, and there were times that I didn't have access to materials that were um, things that I could use, uh, materials in braille that didn't happen quite as readily until later, <clears throat> but my parents worked with me on on homework i learned to do math in my head uh, by the time i was 6 i was doing algebra in my head and uh, and was challenged by them a lot and then some teachers caught on a little bit later in my education and and took up that same world of challenging me to to do things and recognize that i wouldn't do things exactly the same way that other kids would do them i was in the eighth grade uh, taking a test on november twenty second or twenty yeah twenty second nineteen sixty or 80, when Kennedy was shot, and I was taking a test with my teacher. Um, the other kids were writing answers, and I was telling him my answers quietly in the back when our seventh grade teacher, the teacher I had the year before, came in and said that Kennedy was shot um, and So a number of teachers recognize that I could do the same things, but might do them in different ways. And that's a a good life lesson that we all ought to be open to that kind of an idea that there isn't only one way to do stuff.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. And uh, I'll let Mary and Rich jump in here with the question uh, right after this, but just real quick here. Can you, I need you to paint the picture for me a little bit and I'm sure for others as well. How on earth did you ride a bicycle? Like, like like, is there like a beeping like a sound system like how how do you ride a bicycle if you're completely blind
2: the operative answer to that is you think that eyesight's the only game in town and I recognize that you and every other sighted person has a serious disability Thomas Edison worked on fixing it when he invented the electric light bulb so that you could get around in the dark which isn't a problem for me Mm. but but the fact is that as a bike rider, I learned to listen to what was going on around me. So if I'm riding down the street and there's a car parked on the side of the street, I'll hear it before I get to it because I can hear the differences in sounds. Of course, if there's a car coming toward me or coming from behind me, I could hear it and move to the side as well. But it's not that hard. It's just a matter of using different skills and using other senses than what you use when you look down the street and you see things and yes i might not have information about what's 100 yards away but i kind of don't need that as much as i need what's around me as i get closer to different things or if i'm 10 or 15 yards or 15 feet or 20 feet away and i could learn to hear all that there are lots of blind folks that have learned to ride bikes it's all about using a different sense
0: yeah yeah super interesting let me let me kick it over to to mary first
3: well, I'm excited to hear about the rest of what you've done as an adult. Um, did you go to college as
2: well? And I, have into- a ma- I have a master's degree in physics from the University of California at Irvine, go anteaters. And um, so, so yep, went to college and worked at the campus radio station for seven years, was program director for a while and um, had a show every Sunday night for most of that time from six to nine. and. Unlike most people, I played old radio shows because I was very interested in all the old shows and had a lot of fun with that.
3: Wow, essentially an underachiever then. Probably, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, that's awesome.
0: Yeah. And please, Rich.
1: Yeah, I'm interested, you know, you mentioned earlier and with your parents having a different mindset and it sounds like (laughs) yourself too. Um, You know, we've heard many times from, you know, various Sources that, when you lose one of your senses, that the other senses kind of kick up a notch. But um, so, since we're such a comparative species, humans, that is, um, I'm I'm interested in your mindset since you didn't since you didn't ever see right. Is there can you see shapes? Can you see anything, or is it completely blind? That's the first part of the question, and I'll I'll kind of tailor from there.
2: Uh, when I was a child and growing up, I had some light perception, but no, didn't see anything. And and in reality, just to, to clarify, your senses don't necessarily kick up a notch. If you lose one, you don't necessarily get more out of the other senses. It's like anything else. It depends on how much you use them. It depends on whether you learn to listen more and and volitionally take the tact of, I'm going to use hearing because I can't see, or I'm going to use sense of smell and taste and so on it's it's sort of i guess the way i equate it is like um, a military team like the seals they've learned to use all their senses and they've learned to heighten their senses by using them and by learning to get the data from them and incorporating it into what they do so it isn't just
1: eyesight which saves their lives regularly yeah that's actually Perfect answer for the next part of the question is, we constantly um, talk on this show about nature versus nurture. Steve wrote a book called "What Is Your What?" I'm sure you know. Yep. And um, and it's when here you are, you're blind from the beginning, and you've made choices that sounds like you're you're only gonna make every other experience be better and you don't really seem to look at this as as a limitation. I don't, I don't really, and nothing you've said in the past when I've heard you or now makes it sound like anything is limiting in your mind. Do you feel like you were born that way or did you just make a decision or, or was it kind of a combination of things over time?
2: I suspect it was a combination of things, but it really did start, as I mentioned earlier with my parents. But I think that, that it oftentimes, and mostly is the choice that you decide to make, that anybody decides to make. Um, you know, And I learned actually after I became an adult that there were other blind people who thought the same way. There's an organization called the National Federation of the Blind, which is an organization that began in 1940, founded by Jacobus Timbrook, who was a constitutional law scholar who was blind and others who had a philosophy that blindness isn't really the problem. The real misconceptions about blindness come from people's lack of education and their own lack of understanding about blindness and that we as blind people need to understand ourselves and choose to move forward like anyone else. And and a perfect example of that, earlier this year, there was an interview on 60 Minutes with um, a gentleman who was a blind architect. And He was cited until about 10 years ago or 11 years ago when he had to have a brain tumor removed. When when that was being done, he was told that there was a chance that he might not be able to see again, but probably that wouldn't happen. Well, it did happen. So soon after the surgery, a social worker came into his hospital room after they discovered that he was blind, and the social worker said, well, I guess we got to figure out what to do with you and what you're going to do with your life now. And Chris said, well, why? She said, well, you're blind. You can't do what you did. And he said, why not? He said, what, and what he describes is, I realized, as I thought about it, that there was so much I learned as an architect in architectural school that I forgot because I only relied on what I could see rather than relying on my imagination and all the other things that were around me. He continues to be an architect. He's very successful at what he does. Um, and it's, it was his attitude that made that possible and opened the door for him to continue to be able to thrive and survive. And I think that's true of all of us. Look at the pandemic that we're all facing today. There's so many people who are afraid of the pandemic, or they're afraid of so many different things. And unfortunately, there are a lot of different sources that are contributing to those fears, But ultimately, as I learned, and we haven't talked about it much, but as I learned from being in the World Trade Center on September 11th, the fact is that we only should focus on what we can control. If we don't worry about the things that we can't control, they're going to take care of themselves as best as they can. But the only things that we can really address are the things that we have control over. So we don't have control over COVID-19. We do have control over how we face it mentally and physically. Things like physical distancing, things like masks and so on. It's, it's all a mindset. But if you adopt the mindset that you're going to look at what's going on around you and recognize that there is validity to what science is saying, there's validity to all the different things that we're seeing and, and study it and recognize that that's what you have control over. You can't really deal with a lot of the rest. Then you won't have the same level of fear. You're going to be afraid. People are going to fear. But they can control their fear when they're dealing with the things that they have some influence over. And a lot of the rest of it, well, we'll see how that goes in November in this country anyway. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And so, I mean, it's a, certainly an opportune time then to, to jump into that story. And, and I know you've, you've talked about this quite extensively on on Larry King and um, you know, CNN and Donahue and, and, you know, many, many shows and you're, Put it in a book. I mean, it ended up becoming a number one New York Times bestseller, Thunderdog, Thunderdog right? And uh, and so uh, there are people who know your story, but there were a lot of people still who do not know your story. Um, I, I want to set this up with with an understanding of why you were actually in the World Trade Center uh, on that day. And uh, in my understanding, and you can obviously uh, elaborate on this, but you had a series of successful entrepreneurial endeavors that led to your actually then having an office and being part of an environment there uh, right. and part of a company there on the 78th floor, right? Of, right. Um, of the World Trade Center. So just very briefly, cause you worked with uh, Ray, Ray Kurzweil, right? I mean, that's, um, that's how you pronounce his name and just a really well-known guy and we're pretty instrumental uh, in developing some interesting technologies. So just briefly, uh, I wanna give a couple of stepping stones that led you to being on the 78th floor.
2: So it started again with the National Federation of the Blind, because Ray went to the Federation after the government wouldn't believe him when he said, I've got the ability to create a machine that will read any print out loud or recognize any characters um, with artificial intelligence. <clears throat> and uh, the Federation was interested enough, because Ray pushed hard, that they actually went to his laboratory and, and lo and behold, bringing their own material, his machine read it. And so the Federation began a project and I was asked to come on board to do the day to day stuff of traveling around the country with a project that we created that would uh, put reading machines in in public places and so in the hands of blind people to use the machines, which was to help us create a series of recommendations of what needed to actually go in a final reading machine for the blind. Ray made, (coughs) excuse me, Ray made the choice early on that the first way his invention would be used, this ability to read any number of different type styles, Ray made the decision early on that his first use of that would be to make a reading machine for the blind. So the Federation worked with him, we put machines all around the country, and having never lived away from home other than being 100 miles away in a college dorm, suddenly in November of 1976, I was on an airplane going to Boston to live in a studio apartment and then work with Ray and his people for several months until we were ready to put machines out in the public arena. And then travel around to those machines, writing training curricula, observing people, helping them learn the machine, and then finally writing the uh, final set of recommendations that went into the the, the first production version of the machine. Then I went to work for Ray. He asked me to do that. I worked there until 1984 when Xerox bought the company and made all of the pre kurzweil takeover salespeople, one of which was me. Long story that how I got there, we won't worry about it. But um, I was, uh, like everyone else, asked to leave the company, and then I couldn't find a job. The unemployment rate back then among employable blind people was like 70 percent and today it's Mm. still only it's still 65 percent today the unemployment rate is high it's not because we can't do the work it is because people think we can't do the work and thus they won't give us the opportunity anyway i eventually started my own company selling computer-aided design systems to architects and did that for four years i didn't need to work the machine i needed to know how to work the machine so i could Mm -hmm. describe it Mm -hmm. Then I went back into the workforce and eventually ended up being hired by Quantum and and opening an office for them, which is what I was hired to do in New York City, decided to do it in the World Trade Center because we wanted to be near the financial center of the world um, because most of our products in New York were being used in financial environments to back up data. And of course, what happened was that on September 11th, I was going to be in my office working with a colleague, David Frank, who flew in from California the night before to train some of our reseller partners as to how to sell our products. Then of course at 8.45 in the morning on September 11th, the whole world changed. Um, We were in our office, the building kind of tipped, and then it tipped back. Um, And then David saw fire outside of the building and, and there was debris falling outside. When I started to work in the World Trade Center, I made the choice to learn everything I could about what to do in an emergency, as well as literally learning as much as I could about where anything and everything was in the World Trade Center. And that was a management decision. I was the Mid-Atlantic Region Sales Manager, and how would it look if one day we had customers in the office and decided to uh, go to lunch and I had to say to somebody, oh, I don't know how to get around here. You're gonna have to leave me. That's gonna really work well when in two, day, two hours later, we're going to be negotiating multimillion dollar contracts. Mm-hmm. I needed to be able to say, wanna go to lunch? What do you want? Oh, well, there's this great deli downstairs. Let's go there and lead the way there. So I learned the World Trade Center. And mm-hmm. I also learned what to do in an emergency and essentially established a mindset And every day I went in, I actually thought, what do I do if there's an emergency today? So when it happened, it was, it's not my fault. Uh, My mindset didn't do it, but I was really prepared as I realized later to address it. So I didn't panic when David said there was fire. Also my guide dog, Roselle, who's in the picture behind me here, Roselle wasn't panicking, which told me that she had nothing to fear and animals sense stuff much more quickly than humans do. So bottom line is we got down the stairs, we got outside, and then we were about a hundred yards from tower two when it collapsed. So everyone ran. That was about the scariest time for me, but still focused. And eventually we we made it out of the area and David and I and Roselle went up toward midtown Manhattan and eventually got home that night.
0: Well
3: that's astounding. I used to work at the World Trade Center, and I would get lost in the food court and the shops down below.
2: <laughs> we went to Fine and Shapiro all the time. Um, oh, my gosh. It's, it's a matter of learning where things are. and And, you know, Mary, I understand what you're saying. You rely on looking at the signs. For me, it's a way of life not to look at the signs, but to know. So, I learned where things were, and it wasn't long before I couldn't get lost anywhere in the World Trade Center. I even learned where the Estee Lauder second store was on the 46th floor of Tower 2, which was a lot of fun because my wife loves white linen. So I'd go there and get stuff for her and got great prices. But, you know, I learned where everything was. And I think that's a, a lesson not only for blind people, but for all of us we shouldn't just rely on one sense. We shouldn't just rely on signs. Better way to tell the story, several years ago and after September 11th, I began speaking and talking about teamwork and trust and moving on from September 11th and change. And now um, actually with Steve's help, we're going to be kind of reinventing some of that business to talk about controlling fear and um, dealing with the inner tools that you have to be able to function and, and, address things rather than panicking but one of the things that um, I did a few years ago was to speak to the Ozark Safety Council which was a, a an organization composed of a lot of emergency medical people and fire people and risk management people and after the conference one of the individuals from a power company in Missouri contacted me and said you know um, this is, you raise you raise a really good point what do we do if our people are in the generating stations where they are based, and suddenly there's a fire. How are they going to get out? Because it's it's a, it could be a very smoky environment. And we talked about it. They went off and they developed a raised pathway system and installed it so that all of their people then were taught what to do in a smoke-filled room so that they didn't need to use eyesight to get out, which was cool. And uh, to my knowledge, they're still using that today, but I haven't heard there've been fires, which is great. So there hasn't been smoke, but they took the step of recognizing that we shouldn't just rely on one sense and we shouldn't just rely on maybe how we did things in the past. There is relevance in change and we shouldn't be afraid of that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You know, and it's so interesting too, because so many of us who, who, feel like we have, you know, a pretty good, good handle on things, At the same token were, and I'll speak for myself here, I mean, feel like that handle is a result of having so much control. And it seems like the, the results that you've been able to generate for <laughs> you in your life is really all about letting go of control. And and just having that that sort of faith in the process, faith in yourself, faith that you're going to take even the next right step. And it's just it's just such an interesting dichotomy to how so many of us operate on a daily basis.
2: It's, it's some about letting go of control. It's as much or more about learning that we don't have some of the control we think we do, yeah. uh, which is why I said before, kind of one of the mantras that I've learned since September 11th is dealing with control. I've, I've heard so many people say, and for a few years, I've Never reacted positively to the statement. We got to get back to normal. And then I realized, normal will never be the same again. And from there, I learned, well, the fact is, we do fear because we can't control. And the the problem is, we never learn what we really have control over. And that's a a, a two way street. We we recognize, hopefully, that there are things that we don't have control over. But if we really step back and analyze ourselves and and look at ourselves and look at our worlds, we may find we have a lot more control over parts of it than we think we do. And that gets back to the whole idea of mindset. So it's about controlling what you can and recognizing that there are things that you don't have control over and not being afraid of that, but rather taking charge of what you can
0: Mm-hmm and And it is interesting too, because right now we're in this in this in the middle of this pandemic where the the enemy, so to speak is something that we cannot see sure right i mean in in typical times of war, so to speak, mm-hmm. we at least can can generally see the enemy right and we have a sense of where it is and how to react and when something is coming, et cetera right in this case when something is is invisible it it makes people uh, and again, speaking for um, myself, speaking for kind of our take on this, and, and we where we are as a family, it's just it's it's very nerve wracking. It's it's difficult to understand what we can and and we cannot do, because there's so much conflicting information. You hear somebody say one thing, and then you hear somebody say yeah. the complete opposite, and you know trying to take an unbiased look at, at where we are and get information from both sides, it becomes very paralyzing because you have such different takes on the exact same thing. As someone who has dealt with not being able to see, you know, the the obstacles so to speak in, in, in your life and, and you've worked from having to to really leverage the power of the other senses and work on intuition and, and so on, I mean, if you were hypothetically, if you were in charge right now and you could give people advice in terms of what to do and how to do it and, and really just to take on this this hidden enemy, so to speak, what what advice would you give?
2: So going back to the beginning of what you said, you're right, we can't see the virus. What we can see, however, are the effects of the virus. Um, and we have so much media coverage, no matter what one side or the other says, We see statistics, we see what the virus is doing, and from that we also have people who are recognized as being able to take that information of what we all see and to put it together into a coherent and a cohesive story that tells us Although it changes because we're learning more, it tells us where the virus is. It also tells us why the virus is there and why it may not be in other places. And it tells us things that we can do to deal with it. And it tells us how we may not necessarily be able to keep the enemy totally out of our house, but it helps us to increase our odds. And if we our odds of keeping it away or staying as protected as we can. And it's not like this is the first time there has ever been any kind of a pandemic. This is the latest pandemic in the world, in a world in which we have a lot of tools that we never had before, a lot of tools that help us deal with things that people couldn't address and deal with 102 years ago with the flu pe- pandemic, for example, or even with polio. So what we learn by observing all of the, um, if, if you will, manifestations of what the virus does, we can create in our minds an idea of the things that we should do. And I think that it's important to separate, and, and as you said, it doesn't matter who's in charge, but what we do need to look at and address is the information. And I think that anyone who doesn't look at all of the information about the virus that they can is missing opportunities to stay protected. And, and I think that in looking at the information, the important thing is to not deal with the politics of it. Uh, and, and of course, there's some attempts to force people to do that, but the reality is, politics don't tell us, doesn't tell us anything. What, what, what does tell us about this is not only the science, but the manifestations that we see around the country and around the world. And yes, even in Europe, um, we're starting to see some upticks again, but still several countries in Europe were pretty successful and, and in other parts of the world, New Zealand and so on, and Australia were, were successful and have been much more successful. There are reasons for that, because they mm-hmm. looked at the information and dealt with it and forget the politics. Politics should be the last thing that, that we work with. And the information is there if we but choose to to take it. And
1: that does give us more control over our own
0: lives. Yeah,
1: yeah. Michael. I have a question for you real quick when it comes to that. Um, There's no shortage of information right now, right? Just going back to what you said 102 years ago, we didn't have the internet either, right? And so there's more information. So just like when you were riding a bike and you heard all those other noises, how do you recommend people discern between the information as to what is the important information. Just like when you were riding a bike, I'm sure you heard lots of noises, but there were definitely certain noises that made all the difference in your ability to do that.
2: Exactly right. And I think that that's part of the, the issue. We do have the internet, but again, there's a difference between fake information, information that people make, that make up, information that they take and decide to put a different spin on, and the actual information. There's a lot of value in raw data. And then you can decide how you want to deal with the raw data. But the raw data, if you will, is there. How many people have died? How many people in any given area have gotten the virus? And there is a lot of information from credible sources that talks about what did occur and what didn't occur that allowed the virus to grow and not grow. There's way too much information about that for us not to take our own individual advantage of it. And again, as you said, hearing different noises its the same thing. We need to not deal with other interpretations that people who haven't demonstrated to have good credible abilities to understand this virus. Um, we need to really deal with the credible sources. But to get the facts, to get the data, and then make our own decisions. But you can't do it without truly getting the data. And the data is something that if we learn to understand data, we ought to be able to figure out, each of us, what is real data and what is false data. I guess that goes back for me, for my physics training and learning to pay attention to details. Um, I think that You can, you can get information from all kinds of scientists and sciences. There is a a person, for example, who's very good at conspiracy theories that says that the government brought down the World Trade Center using microwaves and that none of it really happened. Well, um, this person has created a great story, which is even justified by some physics concepts, but it's not really justified by all of the physics, and it's not justified by the witnesses who were there and and what we all experienced. And so we've got a lot of data and we need to to look at what occurs, uh, look at what data is out there and recognize what's opinion and what's fact and deal with the facts first and then go off and talk to everybody about uh, opinions and so on. So Anthony Fauci does two things. as as a scientist, he states facts and then he gives his opinion. You can decide whether you buy his opinion or not, but look at the facts and then make your own decision. And you may buy into what he says after you look at enough of the facts. Uh, And the other people who truly have been spending all day, every day, studying this virus, who give us those facts are the ones that are going to give us the data that then we can use to make our own choices. And that's what we should do.
0: Yeah. Yeah, before we uh, wrap up here, let me, let me just give Mary a, an opportunity to either ask another question or just share your thoughts uh, as well for Michael before we let Michael drop.
3: So no pun intended, but you opened my eyes because <laughs> I, I have a very old house. And I can hear the floors creaking and see where somebody might be walking. And smell comes into play as well. Like my front yard has different flowers than my backyard, you know? So I guess if we just open our mind, and that kind of would heighten our senses or our awareness of them.
2: I think that's really it. It's a matter of being open, it's like trust, right? We don't necessarily trust people. In fact, in our world today, trust is under attack. And I don't submit that we should trust absolutely and totally on almost anything, but we should be open to trust. We should be open to being able to say, should I trust this and learn enough to know whether we can make, uh, well, get to the point where we can make a choice about what we're going to trust and not. But we really need to look at all sides by being open. Richard Feynman was certainly, if not the greatest, one of the greatest physicists of the 20th century. And he wrote a book called, um, Richard Feynman, uh, uh, I'm trying to remember the exact, surely you're joking, Mr. Feynman, uh, Adventures of a Curious Fellow. And in the first chapter, he talks about the fact that his father encouraged him almost from the time he has a memory about being curious. His father would ask him, well, so why is that bird flying? And then he would wait for young Richard to go find answers to those kinds of things and develop a curiosity, which really developed the concept of being open to looking at what's around you and then making decisions. And I think we all need to do that a lot more than we do. We shouldn't just take a side because someone says that's the way it ought to be. I think it's perfectly reasonable for each of us to be open.
0: Yeah. Yeah, Richie. anything else for uh, our friend Mike here before we let him jump?
1: No, I, I would, I mean, I was just going to ask him the same thing. You're probably going to ask him the best way to c- continue to communicate with him because I, I could talk to him for another two hours. So any
2: anytime you want, um, lots of easy ways. Um, certainly I invite people to go to my website, which is www.michaelhingson.com and you can contact me through there. Uh, info at michaelhingson.com reaches me. Mike at michaelhingson.com even reaches me. But uh, people are welcome to do that. I hope people will get Thunderdog. We wrote it to be a, a book to inspire folks, um, and I certainly hope people will go get it. It's available from Amazon and, and um, Barnes and Noble and any place books are sold to us, even on Audible. I got it from Audible, actually. Um, it was published by HarperCollins, originally Thomas Nelson that got absorbed into HarperCollins, but the book is is available and I hope people will get it. We wrote another book f- more for kids called Running with Roselle, which is uh, available on Amazon, although more adults buy it than kids do. But I would love to um, certainly hear from, from people. And, and as I mentioned earlier, um, we've begun this project and Steve is, is aware of it. We're working with you to try to create Um, some environments where we can help coach people on dealing with fear and learning how to control fear and recognizing that maybe they have more control over their lives than they actually thought they did. So that's something that will be happening over the next few months.
0: Yeah. Awesome. Thank you for that. And uh, Mark Clark and Brina Dombrowski actually said that uh, she won the the book Thunderdog uh, when it came out and uh, she won an online contest and you and uh, you and her actually talked for about 15 minutes. And uh, so a lot of people have a lot of fond memories of you. David remembers that you're an Eagle Scout and (laughs) just other things as well. So you got got a lot of fans out there and uh, and we certainly are included in that mix. Appreciate you being on. Thank you. Fans go both
2: ways. You too.
0: All right, my friend, I want to mute you out here and uh, and we will go ahead and wrap up uh, on today's episode of Reinvention Radio. You know, I I gotta tell you, that's, it's crazy enough being in the towers I and mean, just when, when the planes hit, let alone being blind and then trying to get yourself and your dog out. Mary, so you, that's interesting. So Mary, you actually spent enough time in there to know how unbelievably difficult that task must have been because there wasn't a lot of time if I remember correctly there there wasn't a lot of time between when when tower one got hit uh and then tower two got hit so just going down 78 flights in normal circumstances takes a lot of time and then if you've got all of the people that are going into the stairwells and you, I just can't even imagine. Can, can you paint a picture for us just from your perspective on what you remember? Because I, I actually was only in there once many, many moons ago, but I've never been in the staircases or can't even imagine what it must have been like if the elevators weren't working.
3: Well, first of all, the place, the the trade centers are massive. And they have the office spaces and then they have shopping and restaurants and they're just massive. I mean... My heart broke when I saw that happen because I had friends in the building that still work. Um, and people would travel, would go there before they go to their offices. Like I went, uh, I worked on Wall Street, um, Pine Street, which is right there. Mm-hmm. Go over there and get something for lunch, go and get something for breakfast. So that's crazy, but I was on the 49th floor
0: mm.
3: and it seemed to take forever forever to get up the elevator let alone trying to go downstairs downstairs down and down i just can't even it's just unfathomable what they went through because for me looking out a window that high up gives me kind of the <laughs> Virgo thing yeah but to be 30 floors higher mm-hmm. in a way i think he was blessed because he could probably, you know, feel the energy of what was going on, but his dog was calm. And for him to have the memory of every step, okay, I can tell I'm in the foyer. I can tell him right in front of the elevator banks. I can tell him, you know, it's, yeah. it's remarkable. And, and again, what are we doing with our lives? Are we doing <laughs> anything significant that brings out our best? Oh, my gosh. Yeah
0: yeah thank you for your perspective on on that and it is an interesting perspective just in general in terms of the the senses and I know Richie you were talking about this in terms of the other senses firing and how much of our you know capacity do we do we really use and when you are uh, at a loss with one of the senses, interestingly enough, as Mike says it's not always the case that all the other senses kick in in a in a higher way so just you know just such an interesting uh story and that the parallel between his story and what took place was September 11th and his life of, you know, being blind from birth. And then just kind of where we are at right now as a, as a society and how so many people are either dealing or not dealing with what's going on, uh, you know, in any sort of meaningful way. It's, it's really, it's really telling uh, in terms of just what, what people, this is one of those times where you just really get a sense of what people are made of.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, kind of, it makes me think to Michael's reaction there though. It's, it's almost like we have a, a false sense of perception. The fact that we get to see, I think of it, even when I'm focusing on the camera, like the camera's here, but I could just so easily with one little twist focus on something different see something different and yeah. i i think we get so comfortable with seeing things we forget how much that mindset and the fear and just I, I can't wait to see what he's working on moving forward because i mean if we only went off what we saw there would almost be no inventions you, you have to think about things you can't see mm-hmm. um, and dream of these things that aren't there to to create a more compelling future. So I mean, I, I'm I'm really looking forward to seeing all he's working on. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, that's a really, really great point. And it's true because everything that's in existence now at one point wasn't. <laughs> so so where 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 did that come from? I mean, it wasn't from sight, it wasn't from something that you could literally see. I mean, no matter no matter what you you know, in your background, in my background, and it's just like in all of our everything that you look at here on screen right now, none of this stuff existed before. Somebody was like, mm, "I'm gonna make that." <laughs> so, right. really, really interesting. All right, let's uh, let's do this. Which is let's wrap up. This episode here of Reinvention Radio, it's good to be back. Good to see you, Mary Goulet. Awesome to see you, Richie Ote. Again, we'll thank our friend Mike Hinkson, uh, author of Thunderdog, and you can uh, go to Michael Hinkson, M I C H A E L Hinkson, H I N G S O N dot Uh, And check out all the amazing work that Michael is into and so inspiring uh, and just really honored to to be able to have him on here with us today. Richie, I'm going to leave it to you to take us out and we will talk to you guys next time here on Reinvention Radio. You just got dismantled.
2: Thanks for listening to Reinvention Radio. For more information about the show and your host, Steve Olsher, visit reinventionradio.com.